0: invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. In his um, gracious wisdom, I got a wonderful, encouraging email this week from Seth Hawkins. He was informing me that he was reading a book by or about John MacArthur... And he noted that John MacArthur took seven and a half years to preach through the Gospel of Matthew and 226 sermons, and he said, you've got a ways to go deep breath. So I did a little research of my own, and we have made it through 65 sermons through the Gospel of Luke. That means we have just over 100 to go, 100 and some change, and about five and a half years, so... Just buckle down, I hope you're ready. Chapter 13, this morning, we are over halfway through now. We come to verse 1. Today's passage has been difficult for me to put into words. and So uh, there's been a lot of writing and rewriting and subtracting and adding going on for me in the last several days as I've been preparing preparing to stand before you, and that's because the subject matter we come to in Luke chapter 13, although is very similar to what we've been walking through in Luke 12, is particularly important to my heart today. Because it addresses what I think is one of my greatest fears and the greatest problems of cultural Christianity that we're around and exposed to on a daily basis the subject matter that we come to deal with is salvation and we deal with that often in the gospel of luke because that's why our lord came that's why he's incarnate that's what he's teaching about that's what he's drawing people to but it's a different aspect of dealing with salvation we've seen the theme of death being brought up throughout the last portion of chapter 12 in luke and christ is going to continue that theme In verse 13, and I want to tell you just really what the point of the text is right at the beginning. The point is that death may come upon us at any moment. At any moment. Speaking of John MacArthur, he titled his sermon on on this passage, uh, Living with Borrowed Time. Very brilliantly titled message. Because that's what Jesus is going to be covering. Death is certain For all of us, unless Christ return, we all have the same end. We all have the same conclusion to our existence here. That's a mathematical certainty. It's a scientific and biological certainty, isn't it? It's a historical certainty that death awaits every single one of us. In fact, only two people that we know of, recorded in the Bible, have never tasted death. Elijah and Enoch, and only a third one, has been set free from death, Jesus Christ. Even tasting it for us himself, but resurrecting from it. Other than that, every single person since Adam, since Eve, has had the same conclusion. History tells us, if you just want to base it off of logic and reason and pattern that death is certain even scientists secular and Christian alike all know and agree that life is constantly waning whether it be life in human beings or life in plants or life in animals it does dissipate to the point of death but what we come to find really in the scriptures is that death is not just A certainty in all these other realms. Death is a divine certainty, right? It's as certain as the one who gave the order that we should die. As a consequence of sin. Now, one of my great fears. That strikes at my heart concerning death. One of the greatest dangers, I think, that strikes at my heart concerning death. Is something I've shared with you many times before and will share with you many times after. It is that there are many people around us and even in our own church who claim Christianity, think they are saved, and in fact are not. Death is inevitable. Death is certain. And we have to call people to be ready for death. And it's not some preacher strategy or some uh, tactical uh, work to try to get people to come to a realization and, and strike fear in your heart. No, death is as certain as the words of Christ in Luke chapter 13. And my fear is there are going to be people, many people that I personally know who think they are ready and they are not. And in fact, That's how they'll enter into eternity. Thinking they are ready and they are not. We know Matthew chapter 7, right? There are going to be many on that day who stand before Christ and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all this in your name? And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Many will stand before Christ thinking, I have a claim on salvation and I have a, a relationship with God and I have... This or that that's going to allow me to dwell in eternity in heaven with Jesus forever. And they're going to stand before Christ and be judged. And he's going to say, nope, you were mistaken. And it's not a mistake that we want to take lightly, is it? It's an eternal mistake. No reset button, no redo, no try again, no do better next time. It's an eternal mistake. One that we find, I think, people... Guilty of here in Luke chapter 13. So it's a. It's a couple that. Uh, a Passage that we face today. That's coupled with the certainty of death. And the lack of. Readiness for it. As I have contemplated. The people that I've engaged with in our community. And even people I've engaged with in our church. And shared the gospel with them and wrestled with them and hear their testimonies and their claims upon salvation. And as I've wrestled and thought through all these conversations and instances, one thing keeps standing out to me. Why people, how can people be so gravely mistaken in thinking they're saved and not be saved? I think I found the answer and I think the answer is found here in Luke chapter 13. It's the danger of self-justification. Self-assurance that I'm good enough or that I've done something. In our culture, our society, the place we dwell and live in at the moment, one of the most common self-justifying excuses and reasons is placing their faith not in Christ, but in some religious confirmation that's been given to them. What I mean by that is it could be Placing your faith in, a, in baptism. Placing your faith in, in a prayer that you prayed. Or, or placing your faith even in, get this, how sorrowful you are over your sins. Or placing your faith in walking an aisle or signing a card. Or, or anything that has religious notions and aspects wrapped up in it. It's anything except for Christ. That's one of the gravest dangers of self-justification. But also in the world we live in the Bible Belt of the United States that claims to be a a Christian nation. That's a whole separate subject. But one of the other dangers of self-justification and in the people around us who've heard the gospel and can relate to you elements of the gospel yet aren't born again in their hearts. One of the problems that they face is they actually think they're good enough. To stand before God. I'm morally appropriate before the judge. Or my parents are Christians. Or my grandparents planted churches. Or I, I grew up in the church. Or I'm a third, fourth, fifth, eighth generation Christian. Or, or I'm an American, an Oklahoma, and a, a Weatherfordian. Or whatever you want to claim. There are people who are claiming other things other than faith. For the reasons that they think God would not send them to hell. And let them dwell in heaven. That's a. Very, very common encounter that I have. Both of these things, whether it be placing your faith in religious confirmation or. Actually thinking you're good enough to stand before God and. Be declared forgiven. Both of those are nothing more than works based faith. Rooted in pride. Various factors commit to people or, or cause people to possess self-justification in their life. Various factors contribute to that. But it's all sourced at the root. And the root is pride. It is pride that makes people think they're good enough to enter into heaven without repentance. It's pride that makes people think they can... Repent later in life. It's pride that makes people think they can talk their way out of punishment. It's pride that makes people think that they haven't done that much bad stuff and their good stuff outweighs their their bad and on and on and on and on and on. And so arises this disease that the enemy is so vastly well at applying to the hearts and souls of mankind the disease of self justification Convincing oneself of a false assurance of salvation based upon self-worth and self-works. I feel special, so surely God loves me. Self-justification is a false comfort of being good enough before God. It's a false understanding of sin. It's a false understanding of God's hatred towards sin. It's a false understanding of humanity, of The way to attain salvation and and on and on and on and on and on. And when you couple these two factors, self-justification and imminent death that may come at any moment, my heart is terrified. Terrified. What a tragic, tragic, tragic thought for me as a pastor. To think that there may be some in our own church family whom I love, very dearly well where death will suddenly come upon them and they will not be justified by Christ works based mentalities are subtle church and they creep in everywhere and they creep in all the time it is the devil's favorite tactic whether we think we have to continue to earn God's favor or do enough good things before we ask for forgiveness, whatever it may be, the subtlety of works-based faith creeps in and destroys until people are facing imminent death in self-justification. That's what Christ talks about here. This idea that you can do enough good and be good is it's it's been a disease since Adam and Eve. I want to read to you i've I've been debating to be honest with you because it angers me if I can just be frank, it angers me very much so so I've been debating whether or not I want to share this with you, but since one. billion people claim to be Catholic. I have no other choice but to expose its false teaching. I read an article that was published this Thursday morning by uh, different news agencies. You can Google the article. um, And it's a quote from the Pope uh, who had a a kind of a question and answer time with some young children, boys and girls, in a parish outside of Rome. And in this... um, Question and answer time, a very complex and heart wrenching situation came up. And this young boy, sobbing, comes up to the Pope. By the way, this all comes from the Catholic news service. He comes up to the Pope and he asks if his atheist dad is in heaven. He said, My dad didn't believe, he didn't have faith, but he was a good man and he baptized all four of his children. And I want to read to you word for word. I don't want to misrepresent what the Pope's answer was. He says, A boy that inherited the strength of his father and also had the courage to cry in front of all of us, If this man was able to create children like this, it's true that he was a good man. That man did not have the gift of faith, he wasn't a believer. But he had his children baptized and he had a good heart. The Pope said that God decides who goes to heaven and that God has the heart of a father. So he asked the young girls and boys in the audience if they thought God would abandon a father like this who was a good man. The children obviously shouted back, No, God won't abandon a good man, atheist or not. So the Pope says, quote, there, that is the answer. God surely was proud of your father because it is easier as a believer to baptize your children than to baptize them when you are not a believer. Surely this pleased God very much. There, end quote, there are enormous, enormous complexities going on there with falsehood. All right, that that is entirely Galatians one, a different gospel. Let him be accursed. Kind of a situation. The Pope there denies God's hatred towards sin, denies sinful humanity's plight before a holy God denies the importance of Christ on the cross it's incredibly offensive and insulting to God what he is really getting at in that statement is that being a good individual whether you believe or not we'll get you into heaven that's what he says and so now there are, there are these young boys and these young girls in this parish outside of Rome who have just heard the Pope say, you don't even have to be a believer to go to heaven, and they're going to think that's true for the rest of the world. You don't have to be a believer to be in heaven. And we're not talking about being a believer in Jesus Christ. We're talking about a man who was an atheist. You don't even have to believe in the existence of God. As long as you do good things, surely God will welcome you to heaven. billion people follow a man who just outright denied the way of salvation. Good works is pervasive. It is the natural human inclination. The Pope's comments are nothing new. As we come to find out in Luke chapter 13, the Jews of Jesus' time believed the very same thing. Maybe not to the extreme that an atheist can go to heaven, even though he doesn't believe in the existence of God, but they believe that doing good things is really what counts before God. Many people base their eternity, their standing before God on their goodness or opposite on their lack of wickedness. How many times have we heard the statement and been tempted to think it ourselves? Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Or how many times have we turned on the news and watched wickedness and evil flash across the scene or look down the street and, and see our neighbor commit unspeakable acts of evil and wickedness and think to ourselves, wow, I'm not that bad. And in creeps this subtle belief of works-based faith and works-based favor before God and self-justification. This is what Christ begins to combat in Luke chapter 13. He's going to use current events to share the importance and the necessity of all people being under the same plight before God and all in need of repentance and to come to God in humble faith for salvation and deliverance of sin. Before we read the text, let me back up to verse 54 through 59 of Luke chapter 12, because it's the context that helps us begin to get a grasp on Luke 13. If you remember remember from last week, Jesus in verse 54, 55, and 56 tells the people, the crowd, to understand the times they're living in And in short, the times they're living in is the time of the coming of the Christ. The the time of the appearance of the Messiah where God is extending a gracious hand of mercy. And then in verse 57, 58, and 59, he says, settle with your accuser. While God is extending mercy right now, deal with your sin before it's too late deal with it on your way to the judge, lest you get to the judge, be found guilty, hand it over to the officer. Verse 58, the officer puts you in prison. And verse 59, I tell you, you will never get out till you have paid the very last penny. So Christ has just told them, realize the age that God has you living in. It's the age of mercy. And realize that you need to deal with your sin before you are standing before the judge. Well, as you can naturally understand, there are people in the world and people in this crowd and what Christ is going to be dealing with in 13 who thought they had already dealt with their sin and yet they have not yet dealt with their sin. So look with me in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, verse 6, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find None. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the servant answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What we find here is, first, in verses 1 through 5, that part of the danger of self-justification is a failure to recognize your sinful plight before God. Two events are recorded in verses 1-5. through five. Two events, yet one reality that's trying to be shared. The first event we could call the Galilean Massacre. These two events are not recorded anywhere else in the Bible or in any other extra-biblical accounts. No Jewish historians, even the most notable ones like Josephus, none of them can track and find what Luke is talking about. But he records this massacre at the hands of verse 1 Pilate. This is our first encounter with this man. We're going to encounter him again later at Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And the account we do know is totally in line and in step with Pilate's Character. We have many accounts that tell us what kind of man Pilate was. He's a shrewd and ungodly man. He hated Judaism. He hated Jews. And he hated being assigned by Tiberius to Jerusalem. He did not want to be there. And so he often dealt with the Jews in very harsh ways and in harsh manners. If, if the Jews were protesting, he didn't tolerate it. He sent the Roman armies in quickly and, and swiftly. Dealt with people even if it required their murder. That's apparently what happens in verse 1. Now I don't think a protest is happening. But something's happened that has sparked Pilate's anger towards these Galileans. These Galileans are in the middle of worship. They're in the middle of Sacrificing In the time of Jesus and in the Old Testament, we know the sacrificial system was very important. People would sacrifice animals for the temporary forgiveness of their sins. And God had very specific requirements and guidelines on how how sacrifices should be conducted. So if a person commits a sin, they are to take an animal and sacrifice it for the sin that's committed. And the blood was then applied appropriately and the sin atoned for for the time being. Now, if the sacrifice's blood had been mingled with something else or tainted, it was not acceptable. So we find Pilate doing two shrewd acts here he's tainting the blood of the sacrifices to render them ineffective and unacceptable in the eyes of the jews and he's also murdering jews and tainting their sacrificial blood with their own blood presumably these galileans were in the middle of sacrificing their own animals to atone for their sins when pilate's massacre occurred and he slaughters them the second event, if you skip down to verse four, is recorded by Christ himself. So verse one is almost this breaking news current event. Jesus, this has just happened. Verse four, Jesus is going to report an event of his own. Again, we cannot find what tower he is talking about, what incident he's talking about, nor do we know why the tower fell. In verse Four, Unlike verse 1, there's a number assigned. Eighteen people have died because this tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Now, maybe it was under construction. Maybe it was under, under remodel. Maybe it was old. Maybe a disaster like an earthquake happened or something like that. We don't know. The point is, the tower fell and the tower killed people. Now, we know a little bit of Jewish mentality at this point in time. Not, In fact, nothing of this text is recorded of what the crowd said word for word. We're just told in general terms, verse 1, that they're reporting and telling Jesus about the Galileans. We don't know how they told Him. We don't know the exact language they use. And we don't really even know the motivation behind what they're asking and saying. But we do glean something from Christ's answer to this crowd. He answers... The two events in the exact same way, almost verbatim, word for word. In verse two, he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And then in regards to the tower in verse four, he says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? That's the common Judaism belief of the time. It's it's karma, really. And Christ is rejecting karma here. He's saying that's not why they die. He doesn't offer a full explanation for the events that surround their death. But he says that's certainly not the reason for it. But Jews of the time would believe that if you suffered in such a way, it's because you committed some outrageous sin or it was God's punishment upon you. We find this so pervasive in their thinking. The disciples of Jesus say the exact same thing in John chapter 9. In verse 1, Jesus passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. And in verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus says it's neither. But the mentality is exposed there. He's blind because he sinned or his parents sinned. Who, who was it here and That's not the case, Jesus says. We find the same line of thinking all the way back in Job's life, right? When his friends are with him and they're trying to figure out, Job, what kind of grave sin did you commit for all of these atrocities to happen to you? It was common thinking that these events, this suffering, these difficulties were punishments by God. Now, there is some truth to this, right? Disobedience warrants discipline and sin has consequences. But Christ is being very clear here in today's text. This this is not why the Galileans were massacred. This is not why the tower fell on them. The whole point is this, the rhetorical question. Do you think that there were sinners because these things happened? And Jesus' answer is no. I tell you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What he's doing here is he's putting these self-justified people on the same level with everyone else. They think they survived such horrific acts because they were better than those who were worse and died because of a massacre, or died because of a tower falling. And Jesus says that's not the case. In fact, the very same calamity and conclusion awaits you. And it is death. Jesus uses current events, much like we should from time to time, to make a tremendous point. And he uses death itself to teach on the urgency of eternity, much like we should ourselves. And he says it's not how they died, it's the fact that they did die, and this death awaits you as well. It's impending, it's coming, and it's happening at any moment. Any moment. But for these individuals, self justification causes us to fail in self reflection. And self-justification causes us to fail to see the frailty that is human life. Death awaits us all. The Lord doesn't memorialize these people. He doesn't salute them. He doesn't give a eulogy to them. And again, no attempt is made to explain or account for their deaths, that's not what he's getting at. He's not being insensitive to them. He's making a much more important point. the The point is, just like these whom the tower fell on, and these who were worshipping and massacred, just like them, you do not know when your time is up. You think you've settled with your accuser? chapter 12, because you think you're better than those who were killed by Pilate and better than those who, who died in the falling of the tower. You think they were worse. That's why they died. And you are better. That's why you didn't die. And Jesus says, no, death comes to all men. These Galileans woke up, kissed their families, went to worship, had no idea This was their last day. These who might have been working on the tower or passing by the tower in Siloam had no idea that was their last traveling experience, their last day of work, their last day to see their families and their loved ones. And so it is even today. Millions of people have woken up today, kissed their families goodbye, walked out the door, and they will not return millions upon millions of people today have woken up and they will not go to sleep alive. Death awaits every one of us. What is the only tool that prepares us for it? What is it, church? It's salvation. It's faith in God. It's turning to Christ. It's exactly what Jesus says with the breath of His own mouth repentance repentance is the only thing that prepares you to face what is imminent in your life death nobody likes talking about death nobody wants to come to church and and be reminded that they are fragile and that every single breath coming out of their mouth their lungs may just be their last I want to come to church and feel good and be joyful. But therein lies the problem. Something so imminent, something so certain for each and every one of us, we want to ignore. Christ says, don't ignore, be ready. Don't ignore. Face it. Life, church, it's a gift never a guarantee we've said it before you know it yourself you are not promised tomorrow you're not promised this afternoon Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 I'm sure some of you are thinking of it it is appointed once for man to die and then comes the judgment life is a vapor chapter 12 verse 20 Jesus has already shared this in a parable. Chapter 12, verse 20, God said to this man who stored up abundance of goods and was trying to find satisfaction in his goods, he says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. reality that we all face is at some point in time, there will be no more oxygen in this body. The muscle that is my heart will no longer work. The activity that's working in my brain and the firing of the neurons and all of those things, it will cease. One day my eyelids will be shut and they will not open again until Christ comes and resurrects our bodies. Death is imminent. Life will leave this shell one day. Are you ready? Are you ready? Because in that moment of death, there comes judgment. And your self-justification will not make you feel very safe. And it will not provide much comfort for you. You can grow up in church and you can tithe and you can read your Bible and you can pray. But unless you have repented and turned to Christ in faith for salvation, you are unprepared to face Death. Do not let the danger of self-justification rule over your heart and make you unprepared. Repentance, by the way, is not a work to earn salvation. It's the first fruit of a heart that's been drawn to Christ. The first fruit of a heart that realizes a God wants to forgive me of my sins. So I will renounce them. Please bear with me a little bit more. I'm skipping over my notes. I want to finish the text. The second point, last point of the danger of self justification and impending death is that self justification causes a failure to know the breath that is life, the brevity of life. Look at the parable of Jesus in verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. It's the right hook of the text. If impending death wasn't convincing enough to you, this parable should be. Verse 6, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Hey, I want to cut it down. The vine dresser says, Wait one more year. Let me try something. And then if it doesn't work, you can cut it down. Now it's clear in the parable who's who, right? Right? The owner of the vineyard is God. We are the tree. And the life that we live is a life that is on loan. God may call it up at any moment. Again, chapter 12, verse 20. This very night, your soul might be required of you. FYI, waiting for repentance is not a viable option. Because here's the reality. You have no earthly idea Of knowing if this is your last year, as the parable says. Or if it is your last month, or last minute, or last second. You have no idea how long God's patience will endure for you in this world. God is a patient God. And He has given us ample time of repentance and forgiveness. Peter says that's why He hasn't returned yet. But he will not be patient towards sinners forever. He will not wait forever. In fact, verse 6 in the parable, he is actively looking for fruit of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Actively looking. And when he finds none, he's going to do something about it. Again, at some point in time, your time, will be up, your chance will be over. The danger of self-justification is that you do not realize the vapor that is life and the urgency to which it may end. I love you all very dearly and my heart would be grieved to lose any of you. But the divine reality is none of us are guaranteed another day. Again, this is not some preacher's tactic to scare you into faith. This is not some, some work and of manipulation to get you to come in and fear and, and woe and repentance. These are the words of God. That we do, as MacArthur says, live on borrowed time. That we do have to bear the fruit of faith And genuine salvation and trust in Christ, or the owner of the vineyard will come to us and say, I'm going to cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? We do not know if the axe is on the downswing or not. Oh, the axe is laid to the root, as Christ says. But for some of us, it may be on the downward swing. Are you ready? Self-justification is a danger because it causes you to fail to realize the gravity of your sin and the nearness of eternity that is on every breath you breathe. The thin veil that separates you from eternity could fall at any moment. What a sobering, sobering reality that death is but one breath away One blink away. I would ask you these questions in closing. Jerry doesn't like it when I say in closing because he says I go another 10 or 15 minutes. So I'll ask you these questions and we'll see what happens. First, how do we know how much time God has given us? How do you know? We have comfort in the Scriptures, right? Each day is counted. The Lord knows the number of our days and He's planned them all out. He knows every step. He cares enough about us to know every hair on our head. But how do you know how much time God has given you? Again, I would ask, how do we know that we're not in our last year? Month, minute, or second? For us Christians, how do we know if those around us are facing death? How do we know if God is calling our loved ones out of this world or not? The answer to these questions is obvious and clear. We do not know. We do not know if the Galilean massacre will happen to us. We do not know if the Tower of Siloam will fall on us. We do not know how or when we will die. But we do know that unless Christ comes back, we will die. And the answer of the Lord is the same to these people and the same to us. I tell you, unless you repent unless you turn to Christ and quit placing your confidence in yourself and place your confidence in Christ for salvation, unless you do that, you will all likewise perish. You will all likewise instantaneously enter into eternity, stand before the judge in the blink of an eye, and your self-justification matters for nothing. Church, it is a striking reality, isn't it? And here is... Another fear of mine. I began with a fear. Let me close with a fear. My fear is that we do not evangelize as if we believe in the danger of self-justification and impending death. That's a tall order, isn't it? To live every day in, in urgency. And nobody wants to live every day thinking about death. Most people think when they hear the word urgency that I have to live my life running around in controlled chaos. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about urgency and evangelism, we're talking about having eyes to see the opportunity, boldness to seize the opportunity, and gospel being on our lips to proclaim to anyone at any moment the saving work and truth of Jesus Christ. That's urgency in evangelism. Do we evangelize as if we believe the danger of self-justification coupled with impending death? I do not think so. I do not. We do not. I do not think so. The danger in reality is... Real nonetheless. Most people out these doors and some people in this room. And some of you can testify that this is how you used to be. Are trapped in a very bad lie and downward spiral. Thinking you're okay before God without being truly born again. And you refuse to think that death may come at any moment. Christ says you cannot afford to do that. Many people have not been brought to a decision concerning Christ because they are blinded by pride. And we must beg God to remove the pride of hard hearts through whatever means necessary. I would say, maybe today you are the one And I hope and pray to God you have realized by His Spirit in the depths of your heart that you are living in the danger of self-justification and you are not ready to face death. I pray God has... Put fear in your heart concerning the matter. Because let me tell you the good news. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of salvation. And as we talked about last week, God is still extending a hand of mercy in Christ. As long as there's breath in your lungs and the Lord hasn't returned, there's an opportunity of salvation. Be saved. The only thing that will alleviate the fear of judgment in your heart is Christ. church for us that belong to our Lord, let me say this. Today is the day of evangelism. If you care anything about the glory of the Lord and the going forth of the gospel and the lost around us, this should be the text from Christ to motivate you and challenge you to take the next step of obedience in evangelism. I don't expect us all to be Converting people left and right. That's the Lord's work anyways. Our victory is to be bold, to share the gospel no matter what. Let us be that kind of people who believe that we're surrounded by a lot of people who think they're saved and are not and death may come at any moment. Lord, I thank You for Your text and I thank You for these people who have been so patient to hear it this morning. They've endured a lot. And I thank you for their willingness to sit and continue to listen. All I can say now, Lord, is is that we hope and pray you would minister it to our souls. I need this truth, God, to consume my life, to shock me into reality. Unbelievers need this truth to be shocked into reality. Lord, do your work in us as you see fitting that is appropriate that we may be in conformity with this text and the admonition that you give and warn that unless we repent, unless we realize the conviction of your Spirit and turn to you in faith, we will all perish like the worst of the worst.